Last week after I got home from church, my, my wife and I, we did what we always do on Sunday afternoons. We, we talk about Sunday school, how that went, about the, the morning service, and particularly about the sermon. In, uh, in this conversation last week, my, my wife uh, lovingly teased me, uh, and it was well-deserved, I'll admit. Uh, she said to me, man, you were really weepy up there. Uh, she said, I, I kept thinking, get it together, law. Uh, <laughs> In, in preaching, I think that emotion is, is valid and is not entirely to be suppressed. But I, I probably did need to hold it together perhaps a little bit better. Um, over the years, some of you have expressed to me how you appreciate it when preachers show some emotion. Still, I recognize that that can be uh, distracting for some. If that was your experience last week, if your attention was taken away from the text and the truth of the text, I'm sorry for that. Uh, preaching is, uh, as I was telling one brother this past week, it's really this weird and wonderful thing. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful and weird experience. In the midst of preaching, kind of several things are, are happening. Uh, as a preacher, all of your own sins and struggles are kind of flooding into your mind. And, uh, and yet, if you are a, a faithful pastor, the sins and struggles of the congregation are also uh, present before you. In my, my own experience, what is, is then taking place in my heart is at one and the same time, uh, trying to allow myself to be confronted and comforted by the text, uh, as well as trying to kind of confront us as a congregation and comfort us as a congregation from God's word. Well, what does all of this have to do with the text before us today? Well, everything really. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 44, there is a, a laser-like focus on Jesus' word-based ministry. In this section of Scripture, this section of Scripture is focused on Jesus' teaching and preaching. It, it begins with Jesus' teaching in the synagogue of Galilee, and it ends with Jesus' preaching in the synagogues of the region. In the middle, uh, Jesus' powerful words of mercy change the lives of his hearers. And it's my prayer that as we consider the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry in Luke's gospel, we would be confronted with our need for this preacher, for Jesus, and that we would be comforted by the truth of who he is and what he proclaims. Well, if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're looking at verses 14 through 44 this morning, and that's on page 859 of the Bibles provided. The passage begins on page 859. Of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind us a little bit of what we've considered so far in Luke's Gospel. The, the primary purpose of Luke's writing was to announce the good news that the Savior of the world has arrived, the, the second Adam, the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised king and son of David, has come to, in the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 77 and 78, give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Luke, you see, he has introduced Jesus to us in various ways. We have heard him proclaim Jesus as our King, our Savior, and our Teacher. And last week, we learned that Jesus was God's favored and faithful Son. And as we continue our study of Luke's Gospel today, we learn more about the Savior of the world. In particular, in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 44, we learn that Jesus is a prophet. He is a physician and a preacher of the kingdom. 
The, the accent or, or emphasis in this portion of Luke's gospel that we're studying together this morning is, is the power and authority of Jesus' word, the power and authority of Jesus himself. He speaks and teaches with power and authority. Even when he heals and casts out demons, he does so through a verbal rebuke. The inescapable truth of Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 44, what it communicates to us today is the, the power of Jesus' words tell us that he is powerful. In fact, if you wanted to boil down the point of uh, this portion of Scripture into a single sentence, uh, here it is. Uh, I think this passage is about the Spirit-filled Son who has come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's demonstrated in his life and ministry. We're going to consider Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 44 in three sections under three headings. First, the promised prophet. Promised prophet. Second, the powerful physician. And third, the purpose-driven preacher. And I'll uh, reiterate those points as we're making our way through the text. Let's begin with our first point, the promised prophet. The promised prophet. And as we do, let's read verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through uh, 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, these verses, they mark the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry in the book of Luke. 
except for a, a small section, Jesus is going to be busy carrying out his ministry in Galilee until about Luke chapter 9, verse 50. And so these verses form something of an introduction to Jesus' ministry in Galilee. For the most part, Jesus teaches in Galilee and he is well received. We see that there in verses 14 and 15. He then turns to his hometown and he has some harsh words for his hearers. We see that in verses 16 really through 27. Needless to say, his, his sweet homecoming soon turned sour and he was unceremoniously dismissed. It's in verses 28 to 30. And standing at the center of it all is Jesus reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and his interpretation of that prophecy. And what I trust we will come to see through a more careful consideration of these verses is that Jesus views himself as a prophet called to proclaim good news and that this was all prophesied by Isaiah, promised by Isaiah. But before we get to Isaiah's prophecy, though, we should be surprised by what we find there in verse 14. Jesus has just been to war with the evil one, with the devil, in the wilderness. He had fasted for 40 days, faced every kind of temptation, and remained faithful where Adam, where Israel, and where we have failed. After such an exhausting battle, is it not surprising that he is said to return in the power of the Spirit. Such a description ought to encourage our faith in Him. It is so encouraging to see our Savior continue on in His mission of rescuing the perishing. Reports about Jesus are, are going out far and wide. And at this point, we really don't know what those reports contain, but Luke does record for us the personal response that is being offered to Jesus' teaching. He is, as you see there, He's being glorified by all. I wonder, do you glory in Jesus? Do you ascribe to him the worth that is due to his name? Do you honor him above all? Do you glory in his teaching and glorify him for his teaching? Do you help the good and faithful report about Jesus get out far and wide so that he may be glorified by all kinds of people? This glorification of Jesus throughout Galilee is really set in sharp contrast with the next scene. In the, the wider region of Galilee, Jesus may have been well received, but in his hometown, he is rejected. Not immediately, though. A number of things take place for Jesus before he is rushed out of that place. Luke is sure to remind us that Jesus, he's a religious man, as was his custom. Luke tells us Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was his custom because he loved his heavenly father and because he wanted others to come to love him too. You know, that should really be the very same reason that we desire to gather with God's people on the Lord's day. Here in his hometown synagogue, Jesus, he carefully selects his text. He selects Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 to 3. He is selecting a text that reveals who he is and what he came to do. Jesus' text was a prophetic prediction concerning the servant of the Lord. And we really have to remember what is going on in the book of Isaiah to really appreciate what Jesus is saying here. Uh, in the latter portion of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah was offering comfort to God's people who were in exile. God sent them into exile because they had sinned and rebelled against Him. Uh, Isaiah made plain that there was not a single man on earth 
who could reconcile God to his people. At least not in that point in time. And the Lord, he was displeased with that situation. So what was to be done? God had to intercede. God had to bring salvation. And so he anointed a servant to announce and to accomplish that salvation. In Isaiah 61, the servant himself speaks. And he says that the Lord has anointed him for the purpose of bringing good news to the poor. Not merely the physically poor, but the spiritually poor too. He would come to bring the good news that he would redeem those who are in the impossible situation of being devoid of the riches of righteousness that God's law required. He would come to give them the riches of his righteousness. He would come to bring good news that he would heal the hearts that have been broken by sin. He would come to proclaim that in him, that through faith in him as the servant, the Lord was no longer angry with his people. The servant says that he would set free those who have been held captive as slaves to sin. Instead, the Lord pours out his favor upon them because of the servant. And after reading Isaiah 61, Jesus, he sits down in the authoritative position of a teacher as he prepares his message in the synagogue. And when he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he is effectively saying, I am the one that Isaiah's prophecy spoke about. I am that servant. Your war with and your exile from God is over. No wonder the people marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, as verse 22 says. Isaiah's prophetic promise was a gracious promise. Through the servant, God was promising to reconcile sinners to himself, to extend to them unmerited and unearned favor. But something is wrong. This scene of sweet grace turns sour. It turns sour because of unbelief. Do you see the question there at the end of verse 22? Is this not Joseph's son? That question you see is belittling and accusative. Who does he think he is? He thinks he's the servant of the Lord. Why, yes, he does, actually. But we know that he's just Joseph's son. Isn't this just Joseph's son? Friends, when the Creator, Redeemer, Savior, and King of all tells us who He is, we cannot sit in judgment on Him. That amounts to rejecting Him. And when you reject Him, you reject His offer of good news of reconciliation with God. You reject His offer of the riches of His righteousness credited to your account. You reject His offer of setting you free from slavery to sin. You reject His offer of opening your spiritually blind eyes. You reject His offer of freedom from oppression. If you reject Jesus' revelation of Himself, you reject Him. And you do so at your own eternal peril. Don't you see? We need to come to understand who we are if we are to be saved by Jesus. We are those who are poor and needy. We are those who are devoid of the riches of righteousness that God requires of us. We are those who need to be set free from slavery to sin. We are spiritually 
blind. And we need God to open our eyes to truly see and behold Jesus as our Savior. Jesus, you may have noticed, He discerned His rejection in that question there in verse 22. He discerned His rejection on that day there in Nazareth. And He prophesied concerning His rejection at the cross in Jerusalem. Jesus predicted that one day someone would say to Him, Physician, heal yourself. While Jesus hung on the cross bearing the eternal wrath of God against the sins of His people, do you know what onlookers shouted at Him? They shouted another unbelieving, belittling question. Luke 23, verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Jesus' prophecy here in Luke chapter 4, verse 23 came true. He was a true prophet. And Jesus, He uttered another prophecy there in verse 24. He predicted that they would not welcome or receive Him in His hometown. And lo and behold, they proved Him to be a true prophet. Jesus' teaching greatly upset His hearers. I wonder if you've ever been upset by Jesus' teaching in the Bible. In, in love, may I suggest that every time our feathers are ruffled by Jesus' teaching, that that is actually a good thing. At the end of the day, we all know that He is right and that we are wrong. At the end of the day, no matter how confrontational His words toward us might be, we must know that they really are gracious words coming from His mouth. Let's guard ourselves from anger when we hear God's gracious words through Jesus. And instead, let's pray for the Spirit to help us gladly receive Jesus' words, which are full of grace and truth. Jesus recognizes that his ministry is not welcome in his hometown. And so he explains to his hearers that God's gracious favor upon sinners will go really where it has gone before. The good news of the kingdom will go to Gentiles who are ready to receive God's gracious prophet. Jesus, he reminds this hometown crowd of two Old Testament events connected to two Old Testament prophets. Uh, those uh, events are recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 2 Kings chapter 5. Jesus uses God's gracious care for a Gentile widow and His gracious healing of a Syrian general to express that just as the Old Testament prophets Elijah and Elisha were ministers of God's grace among the Gentiles, so He too would be a minister of God's grace among the Gentiles, among others. Once again, Jesus' words are not received as they ought to be. Instead of hearing His rebuke and repenting, they reject His rebuke and are filled with wrath. Verse 28. In short, they tried to kill Him, but the hour of His death had not yet come. Amazingly, Jesus escapes their grasp and He goes on His way. The Spirit-filled Son and servant is off to proclaim the good news to those who will hear His proclamation of God's favor. Having considered the truth that Jesus is the promised prophet, let's turn now and consider the, the truth that Jesus is the powerful physician. And this is the second point that we want to think about this morning. Uh, Jesus is the powerful physician. Uh, and as we do, let's read verses 31 through 41. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spear of an unclean demon. 
And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. In these verses, we learn that Jesus is persistent. A rejection at one synagogue does not lead him to abandon the custom of attending synagogue altogether. Verses 31 and 32. We learn that Jesus is powerful, just like the prophets Elijah and Elisha mentioned a few verses back. Just as those two prophets cared for a man and a woman, so in these verses we have two scenes where Jesus cares for a man and a woman who needed to be healed. Verses 33 to 39. Still, Jesus is greater than Elijah and Elisha, for he heals far more than just a man and a woman. Verses 40 and 41 tell us that he healed many more. What ties these scenes together is that Jesus' powerful healings are mostly carried out through his spoken word. And this teaches us that he really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's take a closer look at these verses now. We begin really in Capernaum. Capernaum was uh, located near the Sea of Galilee. And even though Jesus was rejected as a teacher in Nazareth, it seems that he was still received as a teacher in Capernaum. Unlike the people in Nazareth's synagogue, those in Capernaum's synagogue are astonished at his teaching because it possesses authority. Now, other gospel writers will connect this authoritative teaching to the fact that Jesus' teaching was unlike the scribes and the teachers of the law. They taught as those relying on previous teachers and scholars. But Jesus taught as though he has authoritative teaching in and of himself. He depended upon himself for authority and no one else. Luke, at this point, is not concerned to contrast Jesus' authority with the Jewish religious leaders. Rather, Luke's concern at this point is to connect Jesus' teaching authority to his healing power. That is why, rather suddenly, this scene of awe and wonder shifts to a scene of disruption. As a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon cries out with a loud voice. Look at verse 34 again. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, this demon, he recognizes Jesus in two ways. First, he recognizes that Jesus has come to destroy the devil's demons. Secondly, he recognizes that Jesus is the Holy One of God. 
These two points of recognition are almost certainly connected as a question is asked and then answered. One of the things that we're going to come to see uh, as Luke's gospel unfolds is that Jesus' work of inaugurating the kingdom of God means that the kingdom of darkness will be conquered and defeated. Jesus has come to destroy the power of darkness. This is one aspect of his powerful ministry. Jesus has power and authority to do this because as the the demon rightly recognizes, he is the Holy One of God. Now that phrase, Holy One of God, is a direct reference once again to Isaiah, particularly to Isaiah chapter 41, verses 14 through 16, where Isaiah prophesied that God himself would come and help his children. You see what this unclean demon recognizes about Jesus This unclean demon recognized that Jesus' authority points to who he is. It points to the fact that he is God in the flesh. Not only does this unclean demon recognize Jesus for who he is, but he is compelled by Jesus' power and authority to obey his commands. Look at verse 35 again. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. Friends, let's let's notice this. Let's not be outdone by the demons. Let's recognize Jesus for who he is. He is God. And that means we have to submit to his authority and to obey his commands. This is the least that we can do in service to Jesus. Still, all of this raises the question of what we should think of demons, doesn't it? Here we learn that there is no cosmic dualism. There are not two equal competing powers. No. This passage teaches us that Jesus has authority over the demons. And spoiler alert, we're going to see this come up again and again in Luke's Gospel. This passage and other passages of Scripture tell us that demons are real. And perhaps most importantly of all, This passage and other passages that deal with demons emphasize their defeat. That's what we see here. We see Jesus eliminating this demon's power to control the man in the synagogue. At one level, we could say in the words of verse 18 that Jesus has liberated this man who is held captive by this demon. No longer is he one who is oppressed, but he is one who has been set free. The scene closes with the people of the synagogue left in amazement, awed by what they've seen. They ask one another, what is going on? And yet again, they recognize Jesus' power and authority. Just as we've seen before, word about Jesus spreads. But before we leave this scene, let's be amazed ourselves. Let's praise God for Jesus' power. Jesus is the powerful physician, so powerful that he can heal with a word. So powerful that he can stop the abuse that a demon is perpetrating on a beleaguered soul. So powerful that Jesus can call the demon out of him without any harm being done to the man. Friend, if you've ever wondered if Jesus is powerful enough to deal with the turmoil that you face in your life, remember what we've read here. Jesus has the power to help and to heal every kind of curse and care that you have. The synagogue scene of healing 
verses 31 to 37, it gives way to the start of another healing scene there in verse 38. By now, there should be kind of welling up within us this overwhelming sense that something unnatural is going on here. Simon is perhaps recognizing this. Something supernatural is occurring through Jesus. Simon, uh, also who we know as Simon Peter, and, and Peter, more simply, uh, we hope is starting to recognize this about Jesus. Notice uh, in verse 38 that kind of a they is forming. Slowly a group of people who follow Jesus around as his disciples is, is starting to take shape. We'll get a, a clearer picture of this in the beginning of chapter 5 where Jesus more formally calls his disciples. But this is part of the reason that Jesus has to go around and preach at various locations. He has to start collecting and calling his disciples. After this synagogue healing Jesus, he makes his way to Simon's house. And there he heals Simon's mother-in-law. Verse 38 tells us that they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. Christians, stop and think about that for a minute. Do you do this? Do you appeal to Jesus on behalf of others? Do you appeal to Jesus to save others from sickness and sin? That is the work of a Christian. Do you pray for your co-workers like this? Do you pray for your family members like this? Let's be engaged in this ministry of appealing to Jesus on behalf of others. And let's be grateful that a number of women in this church, in our church, give themselves to this work once a month. Once a month, women in our congregation get together to pray uh, for our congregation and others. Sisters, let me encourage you to uh, continue in your work. Thank you for your faithful prayer for our congregation and others. Keep appealing on our behalf to Jesus. And be sure to give praise to God when he graciously answers your appeal. This is what Jesus does. He graciously answers the appeal of those present. And he does so by rebuking the fever that held her under the power of illness. Jesus' healing power is immediate. And notice what she does. She arose and she served them. Perhaps through that language of rising, Luke is preparing us for what will take place at the end of his gospel with Jesus' resurrection. The second thing you should notice that, that happens, what she does, is she starts serving others. You see, this is what people who have been healed by Jesus do. They serve others. They serve Jesus and others. Is your life marked by service to Jesus and his people? Or are you the one who is served? Now, to be clear, there are uh, seasons in which it's entirely appropriate for us to be served by others. In fact, some of us uh, need to stop being stubborn and allow others to serve us. But I'm not sure that that is our challenge most of the time. Uh, you see, we swim and we live in a culture which is calibrated toward our comfort and convenience. Uh, the closest coffee shop to my house has a drive through So you don't even have to get out of your car if you want a cup of coffee. By nature, we love to be served. And as Christians, as those who have been healed by Jesus, we need to push against that consumeristic tendency in our bones and give ourselves to serving others, all because of how Jesus has served us. 
And this scene of service, it continues to unfold as in verses 40 and 41, all kinds of needy people are brought to Jesus. Rejoice in the last few words of verse 40 there. He laid hands, his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus never turns anyone away. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of Jesus, I want you to know this. Jesus will never reject you. Christian, recognize your responsibility in verse 40. It is your duty to introduce those who are sick with sin to Jesus. They need Him. And they actually need you. They need you to introduce them to Him, the powerful physician. These scenes of healing sickness should draw our minds to the truth that Jesus, He came to reverse the effects of the fall. When Adam sinned in the garden, sin brought with it a curse from God. It brought decay and disease and ultimately and sadly death. But Jesus, as we see here, he came to bring the gift of life, which leads us to ask, so why does Jesus silence the demons who declared that he was the son of God? Luke tells us there at the end of verse 41, because they knew that he was the Christ. Perhaps that, that's puzzling. Perhaps that still makes you wonder, but, but doesn't Jesus want people to know that he is the Savior who is promised in the Old Testament? This command to be silent is a feature of all three synoptic gospels. And uh, in New Testament scholarship, in New Testament scholarship, this is known as the messianic secret. Um, because they've been studying Mark's gospel for a couple of years now, the teens in this church should be able to tell you why Jesus commands silence here. So feel free to quiz them after the service. For now, let me just offer the main reason that Jesus commands silence. Part of Jesus' very mission is to teach and explain to his hearers what the Messiah was to come and do. In Jesus' day, everyone thought the Messiah was going to be a person who conquered Israel's enemies, Rome, and that he was going to do so through military might. But Jesus, you see, he needs to teach his disciples and those around him that the real enemies of God's people, which the Christ would come to defeat, are not the Roman authorities. The real enemies of God's people are sin and death. The victorious work of the Son of God, the work of the Christ, the Messiah, will come through suffering on the cross. It is through the cross and resurrection of the Son of God that the enemies of God's people would be defeated. If these demons were to go around telling everyone that Jesus is the Christ, before he has fully explained what that means, they will preempt his death. You see, Rome, uh, Rome was not a fan of messianic movements. And they had a history of squashing those upstart rebellions as fast and as furiously as possible. Jesus urges silence because he is trying to redefine in the minds of his hearers who the Christ, the Messiah, is and what he came to do. Jesus didn't want others to speak for him. He wanted to tell the people who he was. So there was no confusion. And that is why he is so set on silence. All in all, these verses unequivocally teach us that Jesus is the spirit-empowered Son of God. And he demonstrates the authenticity of his claim through his authoritative words and his mighty deeds. 
Well, we have considered the truth that Jesus is the promised prophet and powerful physician. Let's turn now and consider uh, the truth that Jesus is the purpose-driven preacher. This is the third point that we want to think about, that Jesus is the purpose-driven preacher. And as we do, let's read verses 42 through 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This closing scene of chapter 4 is rather straightforward. The sun comes up and Jesus goes out to a desolate place. He is pursued by the people. They want to be near him, probably because they had seen such a miraculous and magnificent display of mercy in healing many people. He's healed so many Jesus has drawn a crowd, and yet, he wishes to move on. It seems strange, doesn't it? Human nature would ordinarily dictate that since there is such great interest in his ministry, that he'd want to kind of stick around, perhaps even until that interest dies down. I mean, the other towns, they're not going anywhere, right? So why, why need you have this need to move on? Well, they may not be going anywhere, those towns, but Jesus must be, he says. He has a purpose. He must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns. This is part of the very purpose of his coming. Did you catch that language of necessity? He must preach the good news of the kingdom. Jesus has a mission and he must remain faithful to it and focused on it and busy about it. He must communicate the good news of the kingdom of God to others. And frankly, no one else can do it. John... John the Baptist, who introduced Jesus, has been imprisoned. There's no one left but Jesus to make this known. This news, this good news of the kingdom, must reach far and wide. Still, we must stop and think for a moment about what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. I'm sure that it will come as no surprise to you, but the kingdom is indivisibly connected to the king. We've already learned from Jesus' genealogy and the first two chapters of Luke's gospel that Jesus is the king who we've been waiting for. He's God's king. And he is the king who brings the kingdom. We do not. In some respects, Jesus brings the kingdom in stages. It is here. It is near. And still, it is to arrive in the distant future. It has come and is coming. Its present arrival and its future arrival are connected with the critical junctures of the king's work. It arrives with Jesus' arrival. And it will advance in Jesus' resurrection, exaltation, and outpouring of the Spirit and preaching of the gospel by his disciples. And the kingdom will come in its final form when King Jesus returns in judgment. This is what we come to learn about the kingdom of God from Jesus preaching throughout the gospels as well as from the other New Testament writers. But what did this mean for Jesus' first hearers? Well, it meant they needed to recognize that the long-awaited king had come in Jesus Christ. It means that they needed to recognize that he came to do and be something more than a prophet and a physician. He came to proclaim the good news that sinners could be reconciled to God through him. 
So what does this mean for us? It means that we should do what the people of verse 42 did. We should seek him out and come to him. We should seek him out and come to him. Not because he he offers health and wealth and happiness. Jesus never promised health and wealth and happiness to his hearers. He promised those who follow him that they would suffer. But that they would also be given a kingdom. We should come to Jesus because he has promised that through him we might come to know the Lord's favor. Verse 19. You see, naturally... In and of ourselves, God is not pleased with us. Apart from Jesus Christ, God does not look on us in favor. We have all sinned and rebelled against God, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, the one who has given us life and breath, and yet we have used our lives, our strengths, our minds, and our hands to rebel against Him. Each of us here this morning has decided to live our own way rather than God's way. We have each done exactly what the first man, what Adam, did in the garden. Instead of living under God's rule, we've decided to live according to our own rule. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And because God is holy and just and good, He cannot allow sin and rebellion to go unpunished. And so we are all in danger of facing His just wrath against our sin. Indeed, the the disease, the decay, and the death that we see in our world is a visible testimony to us that we've all rebelled against God and that we are deserving of facing His judgment. But the good news of the Bible is that Jesus came to proclaim that He is the King. That He has inaugurated, begun, the year of the Lord's favor, favor when He arrived. Jesus came to proclaim that those who are enslaved to sin and under God's condemnation could be set free and redeemed. Jesus came to proclaim that he could heal us of the disease of sin and one day secure a kingdom in which there would never be again the need for healing. Jesus lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Even his faithfulness to stay committed to his mission of preaching was part of his obedience to God. He was sinless, but he died for sinners. He lived a righteous life, and he died in the place of unrighteous sinners like you and me. In his death on the cross, he took upon himself the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in him. He served as our substitute. And three days after his death, God the Father raised him from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. His resurrection proved to us that he was God's faithful servant, that he can heal the disease of sin, and that his offer of good news was sincere and genuine. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to turn from your sins And to come to Him in faith. Come to Him to receive the liberty and freedom that He offers you in the forgiveness of sins. Come to Him to receive the spiritual healing that your soul so desperately needs. Come to Him and receive Him as your King. You come to Him by turning from your sins and believing that He lived and died and rose again for you and for your salvation. 
Christian, there are two things that I want you to note from these last few verses of chapter 4. Number one, don't ever stop coming to Jesus. You need Him every hour. You need this most gracious Lord. Number two, you need to make sure this good news of the kingdom goes out and is not contained. Jesus was driven to preach this good news everywhere he went. And part of Jesus' purpose in calling you to faith in him is to proclaim this good news everywhere the Lord sends you. This is part of how we glorify him. This good news has got to get out. And part of God's purpose in calling you to faith, in giving you the gift of the Holy Spirit, and placing the name of the triune God upon you in baptism, is to commission you for this work of proclamation. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. From three different angles, Luke has shown us that the Spirit-filled Son of God has come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus has been revealed as the promised prophet of the kingdom, the powerful physician, and the purpose-driven preacher of the kingdom. Will you hear his teaching and believe that he is God's saving servant? Will you receive his merciful healing of your sin-diseased heart? And in view of his gracious work, will you joyfully proclaim him and his kingdom everywhere you go? May our God give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and a will to obey. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father,